and welcome to Crystal Myth Podcast. Way. I think we're on season 10 now. It's been such a long time since we recorded, so I've kind of lost track of time. Um, what happens, Mark? What's been happening in your life? Uh, I, had, I had COVID again, didn't I? And then oh, I was fuck. on holiday. Yeah, because you're a teacher, so you were on holiday for the Easter Easter holidays. I was, I was going holiday. to see like... I was going to do like a little mini podcast on my own, reading a chapter of the Alistair Crowley book that I've got. And also I was going to cover a little bit because it was Easter about Eostra, which was quite interesting because I always thought that Eostra was a well-known goddess and that's where Easter came from initially. But actually no one really knows who the fuck Eostra was because there's not a lot of information about her because she's so old yeah there's yeah like there, the people are just coming to their own conclusions they don't know whether she's germanic or whether she comes from well they assume that she's germanic or she could be nordic the, the there's very little information about her uh, only that she could be a fertility goddess which is the closest they can get and that she was the fertility goddess of the month april so that's the only connection that i can find that has anything to do with Easter. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, you don't. I mean, I don't actually know what presumably is. Easter is more her holiday than it is Jesus because it fits more with her, even though we don't know a lot about her. But yeah, we know so little about her that it's like something, something, mm. eggs, something, something. <laughs> Easter. I mean, her name's a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, I know, but I think I also read that Easter was a different word as well. And christianity it meant something else it just happens to be similar to that goddess's name um and the eggs thing is like a obviously a fertility symbol in different pagan societies um and the christians just use the egg as a giant round stone <laughs> covered in cave which it just doesn't seem no i doubt it <laughs> like and the obviously in the hair even though there's not a lot of information to explain it, that's one of the very clear, like, you've superimposed your own religion onto something else because, yeah, the... And eggs, because big stone doesn't make any sense. And that's what I was led to believe in Girls' Brigade, is that the reason why we roll our eggs down a hill in Easter is to symbolise the rolling of the stone from Jesus' tomb. But then I'm like, well, if... Wait, did, did people roll the stone or did Jesus do it with his magical zombie powers? I'm 99% sure that is... Um, or did they find it already? No, I don't... It moved. I think, the, yeah, I think you're right. I think they found it already Fuck. moved. That was it, wasn't it? But he hadn't moved it. He didn't well, move who did? But somebody <laughs> went and told the Marys that... The Marys? Oh, yeah. I'd risen again or something, and then they went and the stone had moved. And then as they went into the tomb, he was like reawakening. So I don't I, I don't know who moved the stone. Was it you, I'm Leslie? Sure. Yeah, because I'm like over, I don't know, 4,000 years old. I don't know how old Jesus is. Two, gra- two, two grand. <laughs> two <laughs> grand. He's worth about two grand. Two pounds 47. Is that. How old? Wait, when was Jesus' birthday, roughly? I'm asking you because you've got a degree in this. I don't. 
the year zero. That's why we set the calendar. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Scientifically. The Gregorian calendar was made so that the year zero was the year of the birth, was the, well, basically the January after the birth of Christ. Right. So how long ago was that? Was that so why we're in the year two, 20? Yeah. So he's like 2000. Oh my God, I feel like such a dumbass. Actually, will either be 2023 or two no it can't be 2024 yet because i think he's actually born in like summer so yeah he's like he's 2023 sorry kids i mean we are talking about jesus right now but uh, we were going to be talking about alistair crowley who was brought up in alistair crowley um, is a much more important historical figure yeah well of course alistair crowley his philosophy was do what very well and that shall be the whole of the law basically do what the fuck you want do what the fuck you want and do you know what i quite like that why not but these days you can't do what the fuck you want maybe back in his day you could no you couldn't really because he was doing things like bombing guys that was illegal but nowadays do you know what but it was less illegal for him i think to be fair it's the same then as it was nowadays like as we discussed just before we started recording he was a very 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 rich white guy so no but uh, he squandered all his money eventually because he was to start off with a very very rich white guy i think well i was i I think if alistair crowley was alive today a young man today he would fucking love it in fact maybe he predicted how the future would end up you know, like to Christians, they probably think we are living in the hell times because there's so f- like fewer of them and more and more people are being like hedonists and greedy and just doing what they want, which is what Alistair Crowley said. I think he would be loving it. But then at the same time, because he was such a rebel, you'd probably end up being like a fucking Republican or something just to be different. Yeah. Do you I know think what I mean? either go the other way yeah. or he'd <laughs> because he'd be like, oh, well, really, my That's view of him is, um, I think he'd be like, oh, really, I was just saying that to get attention. But if everybody's doing it, that's annoying. Yeah, I, I would I would say that. He'd be like the type to be like, well, I did all that weird shit first. So it's like me saying I watched Pokemon before it was cool, <laughs> before <laughs> it was popular. <laughs> Puts on the fedora, you know, that kind of shit. He would very much be a putting on a fedora kind of guy yeah he'd be a fedora wearing neck beard i think although that's the strange thing he's got like such big neck beard vibes but i mean he did a power of shagging didn't he was he a power bomb or was he a power um plower <laughs> I, I think he was a, a power here there and everywhere yeah i mean would you would you describe him as pansexual then i think he was a, a you gotta admire that in him. versatile pansexual gentlemen <laughs> right well so do what i'm what we're going to do is i'm going to look at east childhood just tell you a bit about the origins of mr crowley and did you know that it was his own mother emily that called him the beast i did not know that yeah so then he became like eventually he was like yeah fuck it i am the beast and i'm going to embrace that as his like edginess <laughs> Again, this isn't surprising me because I've not looked at his childhood at all. But yeah, looking at the later part of his life, he seemed very much like the kind of guy that when he was at school would be like, mm. well, fuck my parents slagging me off. I'm going to be the coolest weirdo there is. 
Well, his father is called Edward Crowley, and so was actual Alistair. Alistair was actually born uh, Edward. That was his first name. So he was born Edward Alexander Crowley, and he was named for his father. And he was born in Leamington, Warwickshire, on the Tuesday, the 12th of October, 1875. He did have a sister um, who was born in 1880, but she died just five hours of being born so she didn't and i don't think that was alistair's fault to be fair (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't imagining it was his fault (laughs) now the reason why we mentioned that he had quite a lot of money is because his family were brewers as in they they were like it was a brewing dynasty it was a small one but they were quite affluent uh they were called crowley's ales now, I wonder if you can still get Crowley's ales. I don't know, but it'd be interesting. And they also had Crowley's ale houses. So I think back in the day of pubs, I think I remember from watching early episodes of Poor Nation Street, some pubs were owned by the breweries so that they would supply their ale exclusively to those pubs. A bit like... And, like fairly recent change that that's not standard, yeah. to be fair, because when... We first left school and I first started working in pubs. Oh, the yeah. The first pub I worked in was owned by a brewery. Yeah. Which brewery owned to what pub? Uh, Newcastle Brown Ale owned the Peel Park when I started oh, working. Oh, right. But like so, for a really short time, I think I worked in it for about three months before it was then sold on as a, a non-brewery chain pub. Interesting. Yeah, because in Coronation Street, it was Newton and Ridley, which was a made-up ale house that owned the pub. I guess, how does the landlady work then? Do they just rent it off the brewery to live and work? But then yeah. in the case of Alistair Crowley's family, they also owned the ale houses and provided they were the, the brewery as well. So and maybe they rented out the pubs to whoever was running it. I don't know whether the, the company ran it as well. Anywho, it was a chain of small shops being established by the family in order to give their beer the monopolised outlet, which was denied to them by most taverns. It's a bit like in early days of Hollywood, where a lot of the studios owned a lot of the cinemas, so you could only go to certain cinemas to see certain films by Paramount or Warner Brothers. They would have their own cinema chains. It's not like nowadays where you can see all the different companies' films in one, and the multiplex, you had to go to whatever cinema whatever studio and whatever cinema so that's why they had a lot of power over the actors and stuff and the contracts and shit but anyway i digress um all uh, said they're effectively lunch bars so the crowley's ale houses offered young professional men who disdained the spit and sawdust ambiance of 19th century public houses the opportunity to buy and eat ham or cheese sandwiches in relative cabin hygiene and to wash it all down with ale, Crowley's ale. <laughs> so they invented the, the gastropub, <laughs> basically. Don't know much about the origins of Crowley family. In adulthood, Alistair Crowley claimed Celtic blood from his father's side of the family, but it is possible they came from Ireland. Crowley is a more common surname there than in Britain, and two of the most prominent Crowleys of the 19th century uh, Dublin-born painter Nicholas Joseph Crowley and the Cork insurrectionist. I love that word, insurrectionist. I want to be one, an insurrectionist, don't you? Peter you do O'Neill. Why don't we be insurrectionists at King Charles III's uh, coronation? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Both are opposed to the British ascendancy, as am I. 
Peter Crowley died after being shot by the constabulary in a skirmish. Um, anyway, who cares about the other Crowleys? We're talking about Alistair here. So Edward and Emily Bertha Crowley adopted their religion. So they, they used to be part of, um, I don't know, I think he was a Quaker, Edward. And then they joined this sort of cult, I'd say, called the Plymouth Brethren. Have you heard of them, Mark? I've not, no. Surprise! I thought you would have maybe come across them in your studies. No, I've never heard of them. So they were kind of like a fundamentalist type religion, like a, a Protestant type cult or sect. What mm. would you say a sect was? Just like, I don't, I mean, you're more of a scholastic person than me. A sect is like a small denomination. Uh-huh. A- is a small denomination that like has some sort of dodgy or untoward stuff going on well it's describes it here as that uh, they were formed in 1827 the Plymouth Brethren when a Protestant minister of the Church of Ireland John Nelson Darby and the lapsed Roman Catholic Edward Cronin agreed um, that their own and other churches were ministered to them by men of straw and were consequently lacking in pure spirituality. And of course, if you come to our sect, you will see that we are better than them and we are more spiritual than them, as it usually goes, isn't it? They always look down on others to make themselves feel special. That's why I call it a cult. And they call themselves the saints. As you say, which is a bit like... That's a very everyone that wants to run religion does that. I'd say they're a sect because they're being very open with their weirdness. Mm-hmm. Whereas cults are very like, oh, you'll know the secrets when you come in, and then you know molest you or whatever. Well, they were quite extreme because what their credos was was they refused to celebrate Christmas, had much in common with the Free Church of Scotland because we're all doer up here. That's why we're fucking miserable because of the Calvinist situation where we weren't allowed to have any fun. And we're all very serious. <laughs> the Catholics knew how to party, but the Protestants were all very like severe. <laughs> After several years of missionary wandering, Darby settled in Plymouth where he attracted the congregation, the only substantial congregation in England, which was in Plymouth, which led to his sex name. Um the Plymouth Brethren subdivided into op- the Open and the Exclusives and later into the Darbyites, Kellyites, Newtonites and Bathsheba. You know how it goes. They always split up into their different ideas and then probably fuse with each other or say that who's better than the other and all this. Yes. Pish. I don't really know. Sex within sex within sex. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's very Christian as well. That's why there's like thousands of denominations of Christianity and most other religions there's like mm. 20. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Crowleys didn't think, they, they basically said, right, we'll conform with the no Christmas and stuff. They, to them, it was a pagan festival, which should not be recognised, which I find interesting because considering how Crowley ended up rejecting completely all the Christian embracing pagan, like it's a, yeah. which seems to me like a sign of rebellion. But he actually did really admire his dad. His dad was his hero. I think he learned a lot from his dad. I was shocking it, information because I assumed that he hated his parents from the way no, he No, he hated like, his mum. He fucking hated his mum. Okay, we're, we're back on track then. To the point where... He, like, one all point, of his life was just a big fuck you to one of his parents. No, but it isn't usually the mother that causes like the issues with boys. 
or killers. I don't know. I'm not saying he's a killer, but you know, with nutters, it's always their mother that they have problems with, not their dad. I mean, he's sort of a killer. Is he? I would argue that he's definitely murdered at least one man, although he didn't get charged with it. Wow, I don't know that. Although, again, much like most of the things. <laughs> no, it's like, <laughs> everything with him is either about being a, like a, a an early bicon or just, oh, I mean, I think he's thick. I'm interested when you get to like his early life education stuff because I'm well, like. That'll be interesting, yeah, because he never actually finished his degree. Uh, or no, I mean, I'm surprised he started the degree. I feel like a lot of like people when they talk about him, it's very like, oh, like call him what you want, but he was obviously an intelligent man, and I'm like pretty sure he was really, really fucking stupid. And yeah, we'll get to it, but it's we'll get to that. To man's death. Because I kind of feel sorry for him in a way, because it is kind of his family's fault the way they've brought him up. <laughs> so Edward Crowley faced some contradiction himself, and I'm talking about Alistair's father here. He was an active evangelist. He would occasionally be taxed at public meetings with the charge that his wealth derived from alcohol. As you can see, right, he went around preaching different places and he'd often take Alistair with him. Um, but of course, yeah, it is a bit hypocritical when his wealth comes from the demon drink. <laughs> Edward was also no abstainer. He disliked the self-righteousness of the Salvation Army and he saw nothing in the Gospels which counselled the rejection of alcohol. He had relinquished drink, he told his hecklers, during the 19 adult years in which he had held shares in Crowley's ales. But since then, he ceased to abstain. He regularly drank wine, but his money was now invested in a Dutch waterworks. Uh, one Sunday, his son remembered Edward Crowley told a town hall meeting that he would rather preach to a thousand drunkards than a thousand teetotalers, as abstainers were more likely to be misguidedly complacent about their own heavenly prospects. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> I feel like that's actually quite a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get the logic there, like. So yeah, somebody's like just a leather madman that's like, I want to know more about Jesus because I want to become a better person. They're probably mm-hmm. going to become a better person than somebody that's like, I have yeah. dedicated my life to Christ. Like those people are always shit. So the the um, although the drink was allowed in moderation in the Crowley household, it was otherwise strict and stifling Victorian premises. The evasion of sin was all, which again I find really interesting since. Crowley was all about sin. Non-members of the Reverend, including of course those other Christians who were shamefully permitted to break bread with open schismatics, were routinely labelled sinners. Members of the Brethren, the exclusive deceived, were, as young Edward Alexander Crowley most certainly noted, known to each other as saints. To be a saint was in the childhood of Alexander Alec Crowley a common experience. I mean there's quite a lot about this, about um, Edward Crowley's religion and the way he went about it and what he believed. I think he was fascinated with death as well when he was talking to people and he was also this is something that Alistair learned from his father is how to spread a lot of like, information quickly where he would pass around leaflets, pamphlets because he didn't, he didn't think it was worth them coming to church he thought cut out the middleman and just you know like throw about some pamphlets a bit like you know like what is it the 
Mormonster or yeah. That's interesting as well, though, because, again, not knowing anything about his childhood until right now, like, I feel like in his later life, he's very, like, the way he goes about spreading the message of his, like, occultism is that he does just kind of, like, show up at your house and start talking yeah. to you about it, so. <laughs> so he, he basically, they, they followed the custom of the early Christians in gathering together on their first day Sunday of each week. They're sem- object was to break bread and to worship not to hear sermons and therefore brethren follow the same course the praise and worship of the saints so gathered would thereby flow forth freely to him the brethren would not permit vicars ministers priests or parsons to obstruct this direct line to the almighty (laughs) okay so it was a religious egalitarianism which extended into secular life and he would not allow himself to be addressed as mr or esquire just edward i guess like no whatever i mean they were still quite wealthy and stuff but um i mean they must have been based on how much money he inherits when his mum dies a again. lot it was basically the, yeah i mean they must have been extraordinarily wealthy for the time hmm. um where are we here so edward crowley informed all who bought his penny pamphlet in 1865 and as he certainly instructed his attentive devoted son expect expect and prepare to be despised and be nobody so far as the world is concerned do not expect the honor admiration and love of the men of this age but on the contrary scorn reproach and hatred interesting information to give your son there edward then asserted and we have no reason to suppose that alec crowley was shielded from this revelation that the antichrist would shortly appear and shall sit in the temple of god showing himself that he is god now alec developed a fascination with the antichrist in the bible like because his family his parents out every day after breakfast would always read a passage from the bible but guess what him alec's favorite part of the bible was oh don't know the story of the fall i mean the story of revelations obviously because he's that's a bit that's my favorite bit as well to be honest that's where the good shit happens (laughs) when satan comes and the beasts and all that (laughs) so he started becoming really interested in the antichrist and things um again that adds up the Plymouth Reverend Wera sect. Edward Crowley used the word himself without embarrassment. There was nothing wrong with living in a small sect. Edward and his fellow devotees were not very anxious to swell their numbers for the sake of numbers. They have no earthly or political end in view and therefore mere numbers are of no object to them. Oh, okay. I'm special. <laughs> Don't join our club. <laughs> Alec Crowley. Right, so this is young Alistair Crowley. He spent his formative years in a small congregation which was domestically so sealed from the outside world as to be almost monastic and which was so utterly arrogantly confident in the singular correctness of its own beliefs and activities that the opinions and criticisms of others counted for nothing. It was a small step. Yeah. um, And it was very, very antisocial. So he he wasn't allowed to have any friends. He was kept very isolated in this very small group. And he wasn't allowed to have any opinions other than the group. So you can see how that might warp a boy's mind eventually. And he wasn't very good at, like, he he didn't socialise with other boys his age. Unless they were within his sex. Because I think it was a a wee cousin that came, or a cousin that was about 10 years older than him, that uh, a boy, and he became obsessed with him because obviously he doesn't have any friends. So he clung on to him for a while and he was a bit of a bad influence on Alistair. Um... 
he also spent but, a lot of his life being obsessed with boys. Yeah. Like, again, probably, well, not probably pansexual, clearly pansexual, but I feel like reading about <laughs> his life, like, even whenever he's in a, like, long-term relationship with a woman, there always seems to be some guy that he's obsessed with. Yeah, he definitely follows a pattern there. I mean, he wrote a yeah. book called White Stains. That just tells you all you need to know. <laughs> he thought he, he, he wrote poems, but they were shit poems. He never really improved on his poetry. Uh, the boy found his life to be entirely pleasant. He had never known any other, and the certainty of security of appealed to him. The Bible was his only book, although a deep fascination with certain passages in the book of Revelations led to an instinctive love of terrors. I mean, so he had, I think he's, he was happy enough before he got sent to school. Basically, I think he was a bit spoiled and he was left to himself and he lived and he's, you know how, like, I think only children who don't really hang out with other children tend to make up their own little fantasy worlds. Yes. So that's basically what Alistair Crowley did before he was sent off to boarding school because he didn't again, actually go to school until he was eight. For me, like, I get that you can live in a wee fantasy world when you're very small and then... <laughs> They'll grow up to be a reasonable person, but yeah, he seems like somebody that that the happiest time of his life was living in a like childish fantasy world, and then clearly didn't really engage with education very well. <laughs> well, he didn't go to school until he was eight, because before that it was his father that looked after him. But I think it was after his father died that oh no, he, his father was still alive when he got sent to school, but it wasn't long before he 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 dies, and that that enrages me the way that they dealt with that. This is weird. As a boy, he revolted only against eating jam because it looked messy or salad because the word salad sounded unpleasant. <laughs> Not because <laughs> I dislike the combination of consonants. <laughs> Fair he was middle-aged before he overcame the distaste and first ate a salad. So basically, he didn't like jam and he was a salad dodger because he didn't like the word. Um... <laughs> He was a plump little boy <laughs> who tread tirelessly from village to village spreading the good news with his father. Fun times. Um, yeah. Young Alec could be entertaining company. He was clearly of an empirical frame of mind and on one occasion while walking in a field Edward advised his son to avoid a clump of nettles. Alec was unconvinced. Will you take my word for it or would you rather learn by experience? Offered his dad. Learn by experience, replied Alec. Diving head first into the nettles. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, he'll just do the opposite of whatever you tell him and he'll find out for himself, which fair enough, but that's mad. At some other time, having been told by his mother that ladies have no legs, he disappeared under the dinner table to examine <laughs> the bottom halves of two visiting vulnerable maiden sisters and emerged to announce that Sister Susan and Sister Emma are not ladies because they had legs. <laughs> <laughs> Edward was a diligent evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a very process. His actions aren't so mental as his, like, again, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> whose mum is about, why is she making up that women have no legs? Like, why is she still the time with that? Maybe it's because she didn't want him like, having a sexual thoughts of, I don't know, it's weird. Like, maybe because women wore really long skirts and she didn't want him to see a bare leg. <laughs> it's like saying, things like you're gonna you lie to your children so you get them to do things that you want them to do <laughs> i mean i'm trying to think what the lie like what what could have been the reason for her to tell that lie what was she wanting them i to don't do? know his mum's a nutter 
Um, yeah, I think I think it, um, it Alistair Crowley inspired Elron Hubbard to become a cult leader. He does have Elron you... Hubbard vibes. Mm. Uh, well, so Alex him vibes. So he then got to school until he was eight years old. Before then, he was educated at home both by his father and the creation of. Oh, right. So he told his son that the universe was created in 4004 BC. Um, you know, the biblical education that's full yes. of shit. <laughs> but his father's, his father's biblical tuition ensured that the boy could read by the age of four. So it was entirely thick, even if the subject matter was somewhat narrow. Edward Crowley's favourite text was Genesis chapter 5, the story of the descendants of Adam, all of whom lived for several hundred biblical years, and yet all of whom, which was crucial to Edward Crowley's interpretive sermons, finally satisfactorily died. One of Edward Crowley's more... That's my second favourite Bible story, to be fair. It's a good one. Is it? Do you know about this one? Okay. Yes, it's mental. I think we've done it on this before, remember, when we talked about, like, stories from the Bible, and I did the one Mm. about, like, the half-giant people and... Oh, yeah. The yeah, that, that's that one. It's the same story. Okay. Um, he let him read. He let young Alec read boys' novels such as R. M. Ballantyne's *Martin Rattler* and *Victoria Parlor Verse*. I mean, people don't know who the fuck this is. Like, I guess it's just kids' stories in Victorian times, so that weren't to do with the Bible. Um. And they gave him a thorough grounding in geography, history, Latin and arithmetic. So he did have somewhat of an education before he was put in school. Um, the death of his sister in 1880 was a traumatic occasion for the family. It was dis- certainly disturbing to five-year-old Alec, who deeply resented being taken to see his sister's corpse. And during the rest of his 67 years on earth, attended only one other funeral before his own. Shortly afterwards, the Crowleys moved from Leamington to a big suburban house on its own grounds at Red Hill in Surrey. Um, he was happy at this time and he hadn't been properly introduced to the rest of the human race yet. His feeling <laughs> was entirely domestic. He's still being domestic, like educated at home. He would recall laying ambush with other young brethren to parties of children on their way to the local national school, showering the unfortunate infants with arrows and peas from shooters until they were obliged to take another route. He also developed a passion. Right, this is a cousin I was talking about. A cousin twice his age, 12-year-old Gregor Grant, whose Scottish Presbyterian upbringing presumably qualified him narrowly as a suitable companion for growing Alec. The two would enact boyish dramas of Gregor's devising. We don't know the details of which. Um, Oh yeah, Gregor was Rob Roy McGregor and Alec was the outlaw's faithful henchman. (laughs) It would not be the last time that Alec played apprentice to a fantastic McGregor. I don't know what he means about that. Unless you do. Um, He doesn't know what he means about that either. Okay. Um, he was a lonely single child, is likely to be found mooning around in the big garden, imagining that the Lord had taken all of his family and he alone was left on earth as we playing with other youngsters. So he was sent away in 1883 to a private preparatory school run by a family of strict evangelicals, but not the Plymouth Brethren. Now, <laughs> his... Um, <laughs> We talked about this story. I remember this. Right, so his dad said to prepare him for for his eight-year-old son for this introduction to the sins and temptations of the world outside the sect. He carefully read him Genesis chapter nine. In those verses, Noah, 
having survived the flood, plants a vineyard and proceeds to get drunk on the pretty gets hammered. <laughs> Gets fucking yeah, paralyzed. In his intoxication, though, then loses his clothes as you do when you're pissed. <laughs> Luckily, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and is it Jaffif, spot yes. their father's difficulties, and Shem and Jaffif, who oh, for fuck's sake, Dad, not again, <laughs> edge backwards into his tent, carrying between them a cloak with which they managed to cover Noah without once having to look at his native body. In short, his dad said to young Alistair, never let anyone touch you there. So don't get sexually. <laughs> Advice that he did not take. It's <laughs> so weird. I don't see why telling him that story. I mean, just say, like, try not to get sexually. Maybe he should have said don't touch yourself there, unless that's what you meant. I, like, I, I don't know. So we began. So we, like, don't get so leathered that you lose all your clothes. That's that's so he's better. Like, eight year old boy going to school for the first time. Why does he need to know about it? Just. I'm assuming he's warning him against, like, if he's with boys all the time, then, or maybe men might try and molest him. I, I don't know what he's saying. Like, just don't have. It seems well I'm, I'm not helping you out here because I also Thanks. have no idea. Well, he fucking hated school. He spent a miserable 12 years of institutional schooling. He was unprepared for such a life because he was a plump child running to fat with chubby cheeks and a young girl's breasts. <laughs> <laughs> of course he's going to get bullied. I mean, again, all of this very much ends <laughs> up with what comes later, but... Yeah. He had a sunny, unsuspicious disposition. He knew few boys' games and fewer tricks. He didn't. He wasn't interested in sports. He had previously inhabited a world of lonely fantasy, ruled over by a godlike father. He was versed in social requirements of a religious sect and little else. He was entirely vulnerable, and he was constantly, inevitably bullied. And it rarely then, stopped. Yep, yep. It followed him from one establishment to the next and he was never able to forget. <laughs> 40, I shouldn't laugh because I was built right. 40 years after he first entered Habersham's prep school at St. Leonard's, Alistair Kelly wrote, I had been the butt of every bully at school. I had suffered the agonies of feeling myself a coward and a weakling. My whole life seemed at times to be one vast and slimy sutters. <laughs> Sutterfatch? I don't know, to causing death. Bit dramatic, but okay. <laughs> and then he screamed, but never again, for now I have magic powers. Yeah, he was he was really um not happy in school. And obviously and, and also the teacher that he had, who had quite a funny name. Um he was a retired clergyman called H. Darcy Shobney. And he was a fucking psychopath who liked nothing better than to whip little boys oh. with his cane. He liked to beat them up. Um, yeah, he was a nutter. Uh, yeah, so um, Crowley claimed that the headmaster had told his young self that he, Sean Penny, had, like, this is weird, <laughs> had never made love to his wife but used a coarser term. What does that mean? That he never fucked his wife? Is that what you're saying? I'm guessing he's saying you've never fucked Why would you say that to a boy? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. The teacher told Crowley Crowley that he he never never fucked fucked his wife. But um, 
And Sean Payne formed his charges that God had a special eye for what was done in darkness and that the teacher himself seems to be particularly susceptible to the prattle of schoolboy informers happily beating boys or banishing them to Coventry on ludicrous and obstantiated charges. Um, <laughs> so he sounds mental. Yeah. He a would, of that. Crowley claimed to have been given 60 lashes on the legs and to have known a boy get 120 on the shoulders. The beatings came in 15 stroke sessions interspersed with prayer to eliminate the possibility of sexual excitement. They were never inflicted on the buttocks. <laughs> now, I think we can very clearly take from this story, Leslie, that uh, Crowley's <laughs> teacher was one, gay, and two, really <laughs> into s because the fact that he's like, I've never had sex with my wife. Also, every time I beat a child, I'm going to remind them that they're not supposed to get turned on by it. Like, because yeah. did you by any chance get turned on by being beaten by a man? I think maybe you do. <laughs> I feel like, because he was a little spoilt boy as well. Like, um, Crowley, he, he hated that there were like, slum children that came into the school on Monday evenings to be fed and pre- preached at um, because it was on the grounds that he didn't like it because he thought the deed of Christian charity spread pro- proletarian parasites and infection among the paying pupils. Yep, that seems like something Snobby he would have said to the child based on his life. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> right, so his dad... His father, who he worshipped, was diagnosed eventually with cancer of the tongue. Um, now, this is a bit that pisses me off, OK? So he'd hastened to the best specialist in the land, Sir James Paget, who was in 1886 the vice chancellor of London University and Queen Victoria's own surgeon extraordinary. So, like, fucking the best of the best, right, at the time. Paget recommended an immediate operation. After some prayer... The brethren decided to reject Sir James Paget's advice and offers of assistance and choose instead for Edward to receive a bizarre and short-lived treatment known as electrohomopathy, which obviously didn't fucking work because he died in March 1887. And on the night of his demise, his 11-year-old son, Alistair, who was at school in Cambridge, or Edward at the time, because he didn't actually change his name to Alistair until he was at Cambridge, he, he does like two names though that also oh, yeah. not just himself like all of his Alistair. children yeah he's had, like this is my daughter louise but i call her flamilla bay like, oh, right. one of his daughters had a really ridiculously long name just with loads of goddesses and yes. mystical stuff but they just called her lily for sure <laughs> so an 11-year-old son who was at school in Cambridge still fully expects his father to recover. He dreamed that Edward was dead after his dream was confirmed. In fact, Alistair Crowley was never the same again. In his own words, he said the change was radical. Within the tight constraints of Alec Crowley's first 11 years of life, his father had been his hero. Alec had looked and always up at Edward. No one else had compared with the evangelist. Edward may not have been a leader to most other men, but he'd been the only leader to Alec. So he was gutted, basically. And he was really pissed off with the church because they rejected science and that's how his dad died. So that was how he was on his way to like hating Christianity, like rejecting Christianity or the religious sect he was in. Do you know? know I I mean, mean? yeah, fair. (laughs) (laughs) 
he really disliked his mother as much as he adored his father. Um, he was a bit of a he was a snobbish boy, and he didn't like his mum because she was lowborn, and he felt like she was unworthy as the affluent Edward, his father, had been saintly. In describing their relationship, his language was bitter and intemperate. He not only disliked but despised his mum. There was a physical repulsion and an intellectual and social scorn. He treated her almost as a servant. She always antagonised him. Apparently one time he was out walking with her and he was really he really tempted to just push her off a cliff, but he did I feel like all of this, though, is like he despised his mum because, in his opinion, she was a terrible mother because she he was... didn't exactly like her. <laughs> not, well, yeah. Not for any reasons. Uh, the child's interpretation of what she did must be seen in that light because he could... It's basically, you know, like teenagers or kids, they just... Sometimes they just... Nothing their mum does is ever good enough or they, you know, I hate you, you know, like Kevin the teenager kind of thing. Um, You know, you just curse her all the time. And I suppose, yeah, his dad died pre him being a teenager. So it's like mm-hmm. his dad died at that stage when you like insanely love your parents. And then mm-hmm. he's all his rage out in his mum. I'm very much team his mum here because, again, I do think he's a cock. <laughs> well, after his dad died, he went back to that school where Shompney is and he started rebellion, rebellion, being a rebel and causing trouble and stuff. And um and he then found a subject. He found, he said, the determined pursuit of masturbation. <laughs> he vaguely knew what this was. He crucially understood that the deed was guaranteed to outrage Champagne, so he sought advice from another boy. The youth told him of the necessary action to take, but failed to identify the appropriate organ. Despite mysterious hints from his school chum, Alec admitted to link, as it were, appendage with act and consequently failed to achieve his diabolical goal. So he didn't know how to wank. But whatever he was stroking, the fault was there. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. What could it have been? Uh, like, he did eventually. Know. He did eventually learn how to to wank. Obviously, <laughs> his mum didn't want him to read like certain books. At one point, he had to hide in the kitchen from her so that she wouldn't like discover him reading forbidden like stuff. That's why she started calling him the beast. Um. Plus, he. <laughs>
Alec was enrolled in a day school at Streffham, which he attended only intermittently, but where he finally discovered the secrets of masturbation and applied myself with characteristic vigour to its practice. <laughs> when Tom Bishop, which I find a funny name for, you know, since I were talking about, you know, what they call it, bashing the bishop, wrote an article for the boys' magazine titled The Two Wicked Kings, which warned young readers to avoid the tyrannies of smoking and drinking. Alec dutifully informed his uncle that he had omitted the third and most dangerous autocrat of them all, His Royal Highness Wan. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> he still wasn't allowed to mix with any children other than the offspring of the Plymouth Brethren. Um, I did enjoy that witty joke, but I also feel like, again, the impression I have on him is that he would have told that joke, his uncle would have laughed, and then he would have told it to everyone he knew 865,000 yeah. times while going like, yeah, and as you know, I am the funniest man in the whole of Britain. And the, and the most um, edgiest man in the whole of Britain. <laughs> Look how much of a rebel I am. Oh my God, I like to wank. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, because they were saying about his virginity that um, it may have been a parlourmaid um, or it could have been a village girl named Belle Mackay. Um, but I suspect with Alistair Crowley, he embellishes everything, you know. He's yes. a bit like Jay from Inbetweeners, probably just talks a lot of shit. He's, he's, he's exactly like Jay from Inbetweeners. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> oh, fuck this girl back in the caravan and fingered her and all this shit. That's probably what he's saying, but he probably didn't. <laughs> I do believe he probably shagged about in Cornwall with that shooter in Torquay. No, it's Torquay, yeah. Yeah. Um, his shooter was a guy, uh, what was his name? Archibald Douglas. <laughs> and he introduced them to racing billiards, betting cards and women. The teen dream of a tutor also warned against excessive physical exercise and taught that alcohol and tobacco were natural products. Exactly how a man came to be entrusted by his uncle with the care of his nephew is unclear. I mean, but they suspect that he probably was, uh, he, he blagged his way into it by pretending he was a man of like purity and spiritual means. But, you know, when his uncle wasn't around, he just became like a total hedonist bastard. Because, <laughs> like I said, he was just in it for the money. Um, <laughs> so he corrupted Alec with all that shit. <laughs> like, imagine you're going to school and your teacher's like, yep, alcohol's great, smoke as much as you want. It's all natural products. It's fine. It's all natural. You want to go on a train ride to shag some prostitutes. <laughs> sure, it'll be your sexual education. <laughs> right, so that's that part. Um, let me see. Uh, sexual hunger with the daily desire for food. Hmm, okay. Sexual inhibitions flew out the window, closely followed by the last tattered remnants of young Alec Crowley's Christianity. Once more, he perfectly understandably careered from pole to pole. John Milton's Paradise Lost had sat behind, beside that untouched collection of the works of Shakespeare and his mother's shelves. Um, his mother would... Uh, oh, yeah, he liked Paradise Lost for its vivid anti-hero Satan, now Milton Satan joined the beast in the Whore of Babylon from his favourite book of Le- Revelations as an iconic boyhood figure. So like instead of, you know, nowadays if you have like Spider-Man and stuff like that, he would have Satan and <laughs> the Whore of Babylon on his shelf. His mother said, you are the beast. He would later claim that a horrified Emily Bear first spat at her teenage son. 
Her drawled West Country consonants curled with bitterness when the mother discovered her demon seed's genuine fascination with the Antichrist. Because <laughs> he, he said they were interesting. Satan was, after all, detached from bourgeois Victorian society. Satan was separate. Satan was an outsider. So now he just sounds like an edgy goth, doesn't he? Yeah. Like, <laughs> look at me, I'm so cool because I do the opposite of what everyone thinks is right. I love Satan. I feel like he's in school. Those are like Taylor Swift and <laughs> Harry fucking Styles. <laughs> <laughs> Throws his juice on the ground and storms out the room. He's the Marilyn Manson of the Victorian age. <laughs> he really is. Because Marilyn Manson went to a Christian school and stuff and then became Marilyn Manson. Dick. <laughs> His mum took him to the Isle of Skye and then he got into, he got seriously into hill walking and mountaineering. But I can't be arsed talking about the mountaineering because it's not that interesting. But he does become, he, he did become one of the best mountaineerings of the late Victorian age. He didn't like any other sports. He just liked climbing mountains amongst other things uh, so we went to Cambridge um, oh there's a description there's a photograph of Alec Crowley taken about the time uh, where he was about to leave to go to Cambridge it's an appealing shot of a te- teenager in tight fitting suit and a school cap clamped to the back of his head the fully buttoned waistcoat strains to contain an incipient belly <laughs> His chubby, rounded face makes him look longer than his years, as do the arms gawkling angly, uh, gangling at his side and his nervous, scared-to-be-friendly expression. His face and his attitude would instantly be recognisable to his peers as late Victorian public schools as those of a bullied child. Okay. <laughs> he was bullied quite a bit. Um, do you think maybe people, like kids that get bullied a lot, end up weird? Yeah. Like me? <laughs> Um, oh this is horrible right so an example of some of the bullying would be that he would be greased now what do you think greased consists of I could already putting butter on him (laughs) that's what I thought maybe they were buttering him up and making him run around like a pig Uh, but it was just involved that all the boys would spit copiously on someone's face a bit like Bukaki but you know if they're so I mean, their teacher would be into that clearly from the earlier story, but I don't imagine that. I mean, I'm saying that maybe Alistair was into that. I don't know. <laughs> he couldn't be arsed with his lessons because he was bullied so much, right? That's why he kind of wasn't that great at school. Um, he spun his mother a series of rural tales of sexual activity um, just to, I guess, to shock his mum. Um <sighs> Again, because I can't imagine there was in but an edge lord wank if he was like pure. Mm. <laughs> Just imagine his mum being like, "You're not eating your food," and he's like, "I will go to my room." And she's like, "No, you have to eat your dinner before you go to your room." And he's like, "Well, you must listen to my story of sexual exploits. Today I had sex with the lady in the office. She was a right girl, mother." <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alistair, go. She was a right. Find yourself, so you did. <laughs> All right, well, I'll just skip forward to um, his days at Cambridge University and then I'll let you take over once I've finished with this. So he went to Cambridge University, right? And he, one of the first things he did was to change his name. Like there was a guy in my work who changed his name by deed poll to Seth Diablo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the devil, like because he was probably into Satan and all that shit. I don't know. 
wanted a cool name because Diablo obviously we know is like Spanish for devil and Seth is a demonic Egyptian god I don't know what happened to him I don't know if he's still there uh, throughout the rest of his life an acute psychologically curious effort to escape from his family identity Crowley would adopt a variety of names most of these such as the Laird of Bolskin <laughs> that again this just sounds like some fucking neckbeard Yep. nerd that sits like just wants to look cooler than he actually is with his fucking samurai swords you know what i mean like a weeb yes. sounds like he's trying to yes. be a weeb yes. <laughs> I mean... but he wants to be a wizard like in lord of the rings <laughs> the laird of bolskin and abercarth you know like a bully kid who just wants to make himself like better than like he feels and count vladimir uh, suarez were just exotic <laughs> and implausible for everyday use he required a home base, a name to which he could safely revert. Um, so he then he chose Alistair because, like you said, uh, he liked words that were three syllables followed by two in a poetic rhythm. So his family surname suited the second half, which is why he chose Alistair. Um, so that's that. <laughs> I nodded there as though yeah. yep, that makes perfect sense. That's not mental. Um, he would extravagantly. Pre- he said that he did at Cambridge precisely one day of academic work during his entire three years at Cambridge University. <laughs> so he didn't leave with a degree because <laughs> he was free at a university to do to indulge himself as he desired. Um, so basically he went to college and did a lot of fucking and fucking about fucking prostitutes, picked up those STDs, you know, typical time at uni where you don't actually study. I find that people when they go to uni after school tend to go into the, the unless you're a total nerd, tend to just go there for the parties. And yes. then if you go there as a mature student, then you're able to focus more on the, the, the subject. Whereas he just didn't give a shit. Like he started off in philosophy and then managed to persuade them to do English lit, which was quite a new topic um, in the 1890s. So, but he never actually got his degree or anything like that. Um, he liked the liberty of student life. Um, he relished his escape from the centered bookshelves of his home. His university days were unmarred by scholastic attainment. They were marked by other consummations. Crowley never forgotten remained wholly grateful for the forbearance of Cambridge University. He's saying that Cambridge, as opposed to Oxford, were very tolerant, especially of his homosexuality and stuff. Like, um, he said that it seems to me no mere accident that Cambridge was able to tolerate Milton, Byron, Tennyson, and myself. I like how he includes himself in that yes. without turning a hair. While Oxford inevitably excreted Shelley and Swinburne, I remember only too well the wave of sympathy which swept through Cambridge at the news that the Oxford authorities, panic-stricken at some projected demonstration, had actually imported mounted police from London. Our own dons would have cut their throats rather than do anything so disgraceful (laughs) to rat out their own students. Much of the latitude allowed was sexual. Alistair Crowley had never looked back since his teenage deflowering. Women liked and were frequently attracted to Crowley, a blessing which he was to exploit for the whole of his life. And for it came as the first time, free from chaperones, an adult with his own St John Street lodgings, he made hay, as in fucked a lot, in his room. <laughs> he liked prostitution. 
Um, and yeah, like I say, you got venereal disease as a result of that. Um, yes. Okay. He tried learning Russia, Russian, but he he failed at that. He reverted to poetry, chess, and climbing. That was his three main talents, <laughs> besides wanking and shacking with. I don't know, to be fair as well, if um, poetry was one of his talents. I think that's Well, it. he thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He's so pretentious that he thinks he's an amazing poet. I've got an example of some of his poems that he wrote after he broke up with his first boyfriend. Well, I'm going to skip to the part about his poetry. He, tried, he was basically getting to the stage where he wants to print edgy poetry like a teenager probably would write fan fiction or slash fiction, you know. Yes. So <laughs> he was just about to leave uh, Cambridge. Um, he wrote edgy, like, racy, pornographic poetry. Um, and normally that would get you kicked out of um, uni, but Cambridge were like, well, he was about to get like go anyway, so there's no point expelling him at this point. He was in his final term. Um, so he quickly published white stains <laughs> it was titled it was a collection of pornographic verse uh, more likely to stir up the provost at various stanzas which crowley's cambridge printer refused to handle with the result that the delighted offer was obliged to publish in paris lovingly chronicle the decline of a hifro ordinary poet into necrophilia bestiality despair and death it is, as Crowley himself would later note, something of a morality play, if morality plays were to be written by overexcited teenage boys. And it's none the better for that. Oh. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm just going to mention the he did, he was quite influenced by uh, Oscar Wilde, although, you know, being the pretentious twat that he is, he thought he, he was better than Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. of course, because he's better than everybody. Yeah, this is not surprising. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also about his money. So in 1896, he had attained at the age of 21, inherited his father's legacy. It was a considerable sum of money, although we don't know exactly how much. Alistair's own version of his inheritance varied between 60 grand and 100,000, with the occasion tantalising mention of 50 grand. A friend would claim that it was little as a third of 50 grand, about 16,600. But back then, it is far from um, being like, it might sound like 16 grand is nothing to us these days, but 100 grand in 1896 was the equivalent of 5.5 million. 60 grand would have been 3.3 million, 50 grand 2.75 million. And even the 16,600 would had in the value, and that's in this is in 1996, so it would be worth more now, over 900,000 pounds. So it could last him a lifetime. We know yeah. it didn't because he fucking no. squandered it. <laughs> but that's the money. I mean, if you're 21, you're in college, you get all that money, you're going to take the piss, aren't you? Especially if you grew up a wee snobby, bat, chubby boy with no social skills <laughs> and you're rebellious you're gonna spend it on stupid shit uh right his homosexual encounters he had like so he considered sexual adventure this is alistair crowley so he considered sexual adventure to be his birthright and although his early experiments had all been hetero he was determined to be inclusive so 
he might fit in very well these days and enjoyed his first homosexual experience at university as most people do don't they (laughs) it was with a long-haired 32 year old estate called Herbert Charles Jerome Pollitt he was a friend of a famous person called Aubrey Beersley back then who's a contemporary with Oscar Wilde um, arrived at his alma mater in 1898 in order to reprise his undergraduate success of a decade earlier as a female impersonator and dancer with the Footlights Dramatic Club. In other words, he was a drag queen. He spotted and seduced the fresh-faced undergraduate of Trinity Hall and the two men enjoyed dalliance of several months, which was refreshing for Alistair and Herbert Pollitt, unlike, say, Gerard, Gerard Kelly, not the Gerard Kelly that we know from the pantomimes. <laughs> <laughs> Jenner Kelly was another guy that he had a bit of a homosexual relationship with, but turned into late later years as a totally opposite Republican um, conservative type who Alistair had complete disdain for, was clearly uninterested in his young friend's mind, being besotted by his body. If Crowley gained anything from this noble and pure comradeship, it was a knowledge passed on selflessly by a friend of a friend of Oscar Wilde that he got most pleasure from buggery as the act of partner. What does that mean, Mark? got most pleasure from, from buggery, buggery as the act of partner as the act of partner he what does that mean liked to top so he was a top he was i a top. thought that he was a power bottom but okay i don't know why i just thought he was a power bottom um <laughs> no that definitely means you like to top weird oh, way to work okay. it but um well I mean, that's basically it, where we get to before he starts. Um, I feel like that's a good see. place to transition over, though, isn't yeah, it? Please, yeah, I think we can transition over now. That's basically then and uh, where we are. He left Cambridge University in 1898, and he then discovered the book of Black Magic of Pacts, which led him to the Kabbalah, and then led him to the dawn like the golden dawn club which we've covered before Over to you. So, yeah because i'm kind of i've started my notes after that because i right. thought well we did cover that yeah know what goes on in the golden dawn mm-hmm. then they can go and listen to our episode on the golden dawn yeah okay and he wasn't obviously in it for that long an amount of time because he was in his late 20s when he left the order of the golden dawn mm-hmm but did he have a fight with someone in the Golden Dawn? Because I read that he had a fight with Yeats, who was a poem, who kicked him down I, the stairs. <laughs> I think he did, but he has fights with people everywhere he goes. Just yeah, fair enough. Fucking annoying. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the bullying never stopped. <laughs> again, I genuinely thought researching him that I think he was cool and interested, and I'm like, oh my god, like I want to punch you. Um, but yeah, so he left the Golden Dawn because everybody wasn't telling him he was the greatest guy in the world. Right. And. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad that you don't know a lot of this stuff because it's just complete deranged madness. So when he left, uh-huh. basically decided that he wanted to like one up everyone that was there and really harness magic. So he decided that he was going to train himself to what become a- invisible. <laughs> he just does want to be a wizard, basically. Yeah. Right. So he used some of his inheritance to travel to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I think he just went there and got wasted every day shag prostitutes but also was again trying to train himself he wasn't going to anyone he wasn't like Mm -hmm. seeing shamans or anything tried to train himself to become invisible um it's reported that when he 
sorry. The drugs, do you think the drugs that he did had any influence over the voices that he heard? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Very much so. All right, carry on. So after he left Mexico, he returned to living in London. Mm-hmm. He would basically he did this thing where he would he, that's when he started dressing really outlandishly, which obviously he then did for the rest of his life. What, but the reason he, he say that again. What was he dressing as? Like a mad wizard. like Halloween wizard. <laughs> like a weave dressing up like a Japanese manga character. Yeah. He's basically he was dressing up like he was an actual wizard. Right. Um, <laughs> but he told friends that he was doing this because it was to prove that he was invisible because the more outlandish he was, the more lo- likely it was that people would look at him. So he could tell from the fact that no one was looking at him that he'd clearly mastered invisibility, <laughs> even though just... anyone who's like recounted these stories were like, and he was not invisible at the time. <laughs> uh, maybe the people were just like, don't give him the attention he craves, just, just say he's invisible, <laughs> just act like he's invisible. I mean, yeah, I think maybe that is it. Like people, especially if you think of the time it was, I think maybe people weren't looking at him because they were like, oh, don't look at that man. <laughs> He's, He's dressed so oddly. Um, so I'm going to try and zip through the next bit just so I can get yeah. to him killing a whole bunch of people. Yeah. So uh, he's 29 when his first daughter, who's the one with all the goddess names, but mm. Newt is born. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 32 when he forms his own, basically he forms his own version of the Golden Order, but apparently it's a new thing that he's come up with himself from the voices of the gods that he hears. So he forms the AA, not Alcoholics Anonymous, which he probably <laughs> should have joined. <laughs> but it's, I get it, it's his own version of the Golden Order. It's basically exactly the same thing. It's a magical teaching and research institute. By this time, though, he is completely addicted to coke. Like... <laughs> He's a coke addict. Okay. Yeah, so by 32, what he's got a three year old daughter, he's addicted to coke and he set up his own <laughs> rip off of the Golden Order. Uh, he's no longer with his daughter's mum. He starts dating a guy called Victor Neuberg. <laughs> Neuberg? Neuberg, yeah, I really like his name. There's a guy called Neuberg, I'm sure. He sounds like something from Futurama or, does, you know, the like Naked Gun films. <laughs> Neuberg's in the Naked Gun films played by O.J. Simpson. <laughs> Have you seen Naked Gun? Is that who? Is that O.J. Simpson's character? Yeah, you know the one that always gets like yeah. thrown down the stairs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he's called after this Neuberg because he was. I mean, basically this guy's famous because he was getting fucked by Alistair Crowley and obviously oh the it was. People were like, that guy. <laughs> that guy gets bummed by a man. When you say he was getting fucked by Alistair Crowley, was it like? in a horrendously like daily basis like pumped hard all the time he was a power bottom he was a power bottom right i see Neuberg was definitely a power bottom okay he was also kind of crowley sugar daddy so i oh, as i've no. said he keeps running out of money all the time so right I see. by about the time that he meets Neuberg, he's pretty much blowing all of his inheritance Mm. However, with Neuberg, his magical institute actually takes off because Neuberg is really wealthy, so he's pumping all his money into it while being being pumped pumped by Crowley. (laughs) (laughs) So, one day when they're fucking, Crowley hears the voice of a demon called 
Kuronzon. Oh. And Kuronzon wants them to perform a sex magic ritual. Of course. So that he can possess Crowley. So they basically they go out, they set up the like magical ritual, just him and Neuberg. They both strip naked, but they're not actually having sex because he's basically like he sealed Crowley in a salt circle so that when he's possessed, the demon can't leave him. Uh, the, the demon then apparently takes over Crowley's body, which so gives Neuberg the chance to speak to it. It basically says lots of crazy things that highly entertained mm-hmm. me, but my favourite bit was that it said... Um, it asked Neuberg to set it free so that in uh, Crowley's body it could travel the world, biting off everyone's dicks. What? <laughs> yes, you did hear regrets in there. It wanted what? to be free from the salt circle so it could travel the world and bite off everyone's dicks. It was going to start what? by biting off Neuberg's dick. I wouldn't let it out. <laughs> it, Neuberg didn't let it out. He Good. banished the demon. But from that point on, Crowley believed that he had a link with Curonzon at all times, so he had like this oh. direct line to an actual demon. A dick eating demon. Mm-hmm. I read lots of stuff that just kept saying like it was about this time that his AA group became really famous and like had lots of celebrities that attended oh. it and lots of celebrities continued to join follow his philosophy. However, like when Madonna went, you know, they had all the well, Scientology and the Kabbalah thing. Remember, everyone was following that. And then like that, except that I could, I genuinely couldn't find any uh, examples of anyone who's even vaguely famous that followed the religion that he made. I'm wondering if maybe Crowley just went around telling people that lots of it was. Yeah, he just made it up. Yeah, he went to TMZ and went. By the way, I've got all these famous people following. Cult, pass it on. He himself does start to become more famous at this point, though, because mm. he starts to put on weekly ritualistic magic performances that he allows the public to attend and then lots of papers pick up on this and start running (laughs) articles about basically how people should avoid these public performances because what is actually what exactly is he doing now is he bumming people or is he just singing weird songs like i've got an example of on youtube singing weird songs drawing symbols that kind of thing do you think um, he's like the dead and brown of the day? Like, no, do you think nowadays he would have his own edgy show? Maybe. On cable, maybe? I think part or of what attracted it? people to him as well was because the papers were so negative about him. So the papers were basically like, no one should attend these shows. Um, oh, well, of course everyone was. And then basically just stated facts about him. So most of the things he said, you shouldn't attend his shows because he's divorced. Wow. He's been with other women while he was with his wife. The shock. He's openly <laughs> bisexual. Whoa. <laughs> But this drew more attention to him, so loads of people actually started attending his shows. So he's then got income coming in from that as well. So he's now he's lost all his money, but he's actually starting to make his own money. And because he's with Neuberg, um, he's also got access to Neuberg's money, and he's very very rich. Mm-hmm. However, shortly after he turns thirty-seven, so how long have him and Neuberg been together? With so him and Neuberg were together for about two years. No, oh, about so. a year and a half. Okay. And he meets a woman called Mary oh. Dusty Sturgis. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I will not, because that's her name. Dusty Sturgis? Is Dusty like a nickname? Like a porn kind of like stage name? No, I think her actual Dusty genuine Bombs. name birth certificate was Mary Dusty Sturgis. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> and what uh, about her? Does she have some sort of magical fanny that lured him away from the power bottom guy? 
she does actually have a match. She got more money. So the reason that he leaves Neuberg for her is because he believes that the best way for him to conduct his magic is uh, through sexual links with a scarlet woman. Okay. And Neuberg can never be a scarlet woman because <laughs> Neuberg is a man. You saying so that he, men can't be women? <laughs> uh, I'm not, but Crowley is. <laughs> <laughs> so he believes that Corazon wants him to be with Mary Dusty Sturgis. Well, that's not true. He believes that Coronzon wants him to be with a scarlet woman, and he thinks that Mary might be that woman with the magic vagina. Say that again. Code of Babylon that he was fascinated with. Yes, yeah. I think that's linked there. Okay. So (laughs) he leaves Neuberg. He starts performing sex magic with her. Um. Well, he's doing that instead of demons appearing to him. The first time they have sex, Mary Dusty Sturgis claims, may or may not be true, um, that wizards <laughs> that could not be seen by Crowley, so she's mad too, uh, appear before <laughs> her when they're having sex. Oh. Okay. And they write a book together about it, which gets published in 1912. Right. I mean, I often see wizard things when I'm having sexual relations don't you <laughs> no i see the burn is on all right he tries to tell you bite off women's tits or something he, just... <laughs> he tells you to eat all of the nipples in the world <laughs> okay so shortly after crowley turns 39 neuberg withdraws funding from the aa he's basically done with yeah well crowley it would be better rubbing maybe dusty sturgis in his face yeah <laughs> taking all those taking all those things up the arse with Crowley and the, he just left them so he's no longer with Neuberg okay. Neuberg's withdrawn all his funding he mm-hmm. no longer is doing his public performances so he's got no more money coming in there's no new people joining his church oh, no. so basically just before he turns 40 he becomes bankrupt again oh, shit. so he mm-hmm. leaves Mary Dusty Sturgis. He moves to New York. Again, I'm really glad you don't know all of these things because this is crazy. He starts making money by by going to socialites parties. Well, why not? And getting people to pay him to guess their birthday. What? <laughs> that is like... <laughs> that is like Lori Denim Brown shit. Yes! <laughs> It's not even that interested. Like, <laughs> I thought you would be doing something else, like maybe predicting their future, but guessing their birthday. No, guessing your birthday. It's like saying, oh, I'll guess your, and then I'll tell you your star sign. And oh my God. Dude. It's I more think, I think that wasn't than Dead and Brown, isn't it? Like, you can just yeah. ask someone else their birthday and then be like, I'm guessing it's in yeah. June. <laughs> <laughs> then, okay. He ends up using his. English literature experience, which threw me, but now I understand, not actually got a degree in it, but he was one of the few people who studied English literature, and manages to wrangle himself a job writing for a German, a German-American newspaper for Germans living in New York. Oh yeah, he said that he thought that Adolf Hitler would join his his, um, religion. Yeah. Obviously that didn't happen. (laughs) So he basically writes weekly anti-British 
propaganda articles. Oh, okay. From the perspective of like, I grew up in Britain. This is why Britain's terrible. Germany's so much better. Blah 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 blah. Which does seem like a very Crowley thing to do because he wants to do the he wants to do things that are shocking. Yes. So obviously, yeah. Okay. What prick? But he starts making like good money from that again. Like he oh, actually becomes enough. a relatively successful journalist. There's a second uh, anti-British newspaper that asks him to write for them as well. I mean, to be fair, I'd write an anti-British newspaper right now. So. You would and you wouldn't retract it because when asked about it later, Crowley claims that he was actually an undercover agent working for British intelligence. So he's claiming he was a double agent, right? That's not true. British (laughs) intelligence have been very clear that Alistair Crowley never worked for them, which is also funny because there's two other points in time in his life when he does things that are really controversial and claims that it's because he was working for British intelligence. Yeah, which makes you think that this guy is just a deranged fucking liar. Yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're rapidly moving towards the good bit, which is what I really want to tell you about, but I'm just oh. trying to set up a bit of background. Right. He then travels to, in fact, no, he returns to London for a short time, finds he's not welcome in London because he's been writing British propaganda. So <laughs> he then travels to New Orleans where he of then course. actually makes a great deal of money again. He writes a work of fiction called Moonchild. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. You can actually um there's like you can listen to the full audio of it on YouTube. Apparently it's really good. Oh, okay. It becomes like Make a, a best selling novel. So he actually makes what would be the equivalent of like near enough a million pounds in book sales from it. Nice. It's one of the most popular novels of its time. I don't know what it's about. It sounds like a hippie sort of book, but it does maybe. sound very like hippie-ish, which does again tie into what happens next. Oh, <laughs> does he so, have a commune? And he does. Whoa! <laughs> so in 1917, he has a dream that he's going to be able to set up his own. He doesn't call it a commune. Where's I've, I've written like, it down somewhere? What he calls it, but he's going to set up his own commune effectively. And the reason that he's going to do this is from the wealth that uh, he inherits from his mother because she is going to die. And then several days later, she does, in fact, die. Which he's so, probably very pleased about because he yeah, hates her. overjoyed. <laughs> so he inherits his mother's estate, which is the equivalent in nowadays money of £7.5 million. Pounds. What the fuck? I thought his mum was poor. Mm, nope. <laughs> Obviously, she wouldn't be because she married into the rich family. Right, okay, fair enough. So <clears throat> he became again extremely wealthy. So he's now got the money from his book sales. He's got the so he's effectively got the equivalent of what would be about eight million pounds today wow. after having lost all his money twice. I, f- I suspect that's not gonna money's not gonna last very it's long. The madness that comes next. So. <laughs> He starts to put things in motion that he's going to set this commune up. In 1919, he meets a teacher called Leah Hersig. Mm-hmm. And he becomes convinced that she is, in fact, the Scarlet Woman. And the old Dusty from earlier was, was not the Scarlet Woman at all. <laughs> However, he doesn't call her the Scarlet Woman because she is his <laughs> ape of Toth. What does that mean? So I was hoping I was wondering if you would know this or not because you. Well, I know Toph is the is well, I'd say Foth, but it is the uh, ancient Egyptian god of learning there and we writing. Go. Okay. I, I didn't know that, but I, that, when I was reading that, I was like, I bet Leslie knows this yeah. already. 
So, sorry, how am I supposed to say it? Thoth. Thoth. Yeah, except I can't so, say THs, so it will come out weird with me. But like THO. Like Thoth. Thoth, yeah. Thoth. Yeah. Thoth. Yeah. So, yeah, Thoth is this like education, dog headed. Mm-hmm. And it or has. He usually based... has the head of an ibis. Oh, sorry, you're right. It's got the head of an ibis. And he was has... an American gods, Mark. You must know. I... He... Oh, he yeah. Was, he was the one that wrote down all the stories of the gods in the funeral parlor. That's him. So... He has a creature of death that travels with him, and it has the head of a dog and the body of a. That's baboon. Anubis. Oh, so okay, so then the ape of Thoth, the ape of Thoth is just another name for Anubis. No, I you think, think he'd have called it Anubis. <laughs> no, Anubis is one of his companions, but I think the baboon is one of the creatures that live in the underworld where they help out. He judges people with the weighing of the heart. Oh well, then yeah, that's who she is. Right, so she's that pet right, okay. So she's like the, the judgment on death. Yeah, that's right. So she judges he and Leah return mm-hmm. to England together and set up home with his aunt. This is so they don't call it a commune, they want to set up their own abbey. They don't build an abbey, Leslie. Um <laughs> so him and Leah move in with his aunt so that they can basically stop spending his fortune and just live off her. So that they can start to put plans in motion to set up an abbey, which is really they're just setting up a commune. Mm-hmm. It's also while he's staying back in England that uh, he's no longer got access to the medication that he was taking for his asthma when he was living in America. Oh yeah, he does have local, asthma. Mm-hmm. The local GP prescribes him heroin. <laughs> Fucking he's now hell! Taking cocaine and heroin every day. That's not that's how he's speedballing basically. <laughs> so. He wants to set the Abbey up in England, but he has to abandon that plan because people in England are still really angry with him because of his anti-British articles that he wrote for German newspapers. Yeah. So him and Leah firstly move to Paris, but they can't find somewhere suitable to set up there. And then they move to Sicily. In Italy, yeah. Okay. And when in Sicily, together they set up, uh, again, a commune, which they called the Abbey of Thelema. Right. Uh-huh. So he told basically anyone that would listen that he was setting up this abbey because he wanted to start a new world order where he and Leah would run the entire world from this location in Sicily. They were going to be in charge of everyone. See, this is where it gets into, it sounds a bit like L. Ron Hubbard territory. Yeah, this is, he's going very L. Ron Hubbardy. Also the fact that he's Hubbard. an abbey, he's set up an abbey, he's not, Hmm. it's like, I mean, honestly, it's like. Where was it? It was just a wee house. It's an abandoned house in the middle of right. nowhere. Okay. Like the Manson family taking over the abandoned yeah. Western shit. Right. Okay. I get you. Yeah. And who so, does he get followers? He does, which is confusing because for some reason, right, they start to get followers. So there's maybe only about six of them, I think, living there at first. Mm-hmm. They had no internal plumbing. He got nobody to come and set up internal plumbing, but the house that they were staying in had been like built it. with internal toilets. Oh. And just never set up with plumbing. Well, it sounds so, like he's a squatter. I mean, he has actually bought the house. What? <laughs> That's what, So he used his money to buy this house and patch of land and then isn't doing anything with it. So I think, yeah, at that point, there's him, Leah, and four of their followers. They're, and now there's obviously other mental things going on, but the one that really stuck out to me, they're using the two internal toilets as if they are working toilets, but they're not. Oh, 
So a bunch of other followers show up, and the first thing that some people reported when they showed up is that by the time you're sort of 10th, 11th, 12th people showed up to to join his commune, the so, two uh, toilets in the house were overflowing with shit. Oh, and then that would bring other things like flies and maggots yep. and... Ugh. And they were yeah. just like going in and shitting on the shit. That is such a net beard thing to do like yeah or hoarder yeah. there's they've always got issues or is it because he's he's like on he's a junkie coke addict yes like he doesn't know what's going on he's no idea what the fuck's happening <laughs> and to read my next note i'm pretty sure leah's batshit mental <laughs> she's probably in the same doing the same thing he is okay so they end up getting up to about 20 people living in their commune that they're calling an abbey uh-huh Leah leads everyone every morning in religious chanting, and she also leads them in religious chanting before they eat any meal. <laughs> there's, there's also reports from several people that left the cult that um, she was obsessed with trying to fuck goats because she thought that it would give her supernatural powers. <laughs> they were constantly conducting rituals where they were trying to get a goat to have sex with her. None of them ever did. Christ, man, no wonder. Uh, one person reported that they left the cult, which again has been confirmed by other people, when she shat on a plate and Crowley ate it in front of oh. everyone. Yep. Oh, God. Now, basically, Crowley had spent all of his money again because well in the Abbey, he just kept buying heroin and coke and leaving it everywhere. Yeah, I so that. it was basically like a like a crackdown. early 1900s free love commune. Everyone was walking around basically naked, taking shed loads of heroin and coke and shagging everywhere. Sounds like a party. <laughs> Even though most of the people that came to stay there had children, including oh, Crowley and Leah, who all brought their children with them. Oh, my God. Yep. So those kids were wandering around exposed to all these fucking sexual deviants eating yep. shit. Basically, there was young kids walking around oh, a giant orgy with shit everywhere, no running water, no access to food, and heroin and cocaine just sitting out everywhere. Right, I'd imagine that eventually someone's going to do something about this. No? They, they do. Okay. <laughs> also, this bit annoyed me because I get Crowley's whole thing is like, do as you will, and I get that he doesn't have the whole like, and do well, no harm. Is, but do what also, you will. <laughs> he's certainly doing that. Yeah. But like, I feel like his whole point earlier in his life is like you know you're not bringing harm to young people you're not corrupting anyone you're uh-huh. just living your own life and i'm like yeah. you're making children wander around and a shit bit yeah <laughs> exposed to really sexual weirdness mm. so not great leah and alistair have a baby no um i didn't write down her actual name but again she has a name but alistair calls her poopy was she born in a river of shit? Yeah, I mean, the, the strange choice of name. <laughs> uh, due to the horrific unsanitary conditions, Poopy dies. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, right? Okay, yeah. Okay. I'm not, uh, I'm not surprised. When travelling away and basically trying to recruit other people, he now has... So he's basically recruited two people that he calls the Scarlet Women. So he's got Leah, who's the ape, Mm-hmm. Again, hot name. And then he's got his two scarlet women, Jane and Nanette. Now, when they arrive, um, I can't, I didn't write down which one of the two of them is, but basically one of them freaks the fuck out because there's a dead baby there and piles of shit. Oh, 
like they didn't take the baby to be cremated. There was no coroner. There's just oh. oh god. I know. Uh, see, see, <laughs> see why I like him far less than I thought I would. Yeah. He's it's probably again. It's like that scene in Train Spotting, isn't it, where the baby just gets neglected. Yes. And it dies, and then he has that nightmare of the baby just crawling on the ceiling. That's fucking horrible. Imagine that. I mean, it is like horrific. Yeah. So, a short time later, <laughs> after Pepe has passed away, Crowley <laughs> decides himself that he has become so powerful in his magic that he's actually become God on Earth. Um. Yeah. See, this is what I wonder about Crowley. Is that he's doing all these well in his head he's doing I don't know whether he is actually raising like where what is he getting out of it because he seems to be losing all the time losing his fucking mind because he's what does he gain unless and he's not he's losing his money constantly he doesn't seem to gain from the magic no and also what he's claiming are rituals are just literally anything like I get like he's chanting and that's a ritual he's drawing symbols and that's a ritual but like. Just everything he's doing. Like, he claimed that when him and his boyfriend, Neuberg from earlier in my tale, uh, had sex, that was a magic, that was a magic ritual. He yeah, but what was it doing? When people left in disgust when he ate Leah's shit off a plate, he said, no, this is a magic ritual. Like, no. That, Everything's a magic ritual. That kid's eating his shit. <laughs> I fuck goats, it's a magic ritual. <laughs> to what end, though? What do you get out of it? I, don't, I mean, as you point out, <laughs> no surprise the next bit of the story lies like he becomes bankrupt again so, oh, God. so he becomes bankrupt because he's just supplying this house with coke and heroin so quite a lot of the followers then start leaving because there's no longer free flowing drugs he decides that he's going to write an autobiographical book called the diary of a drug fiend oh yeah i've heard of that uh-huh. and release that to get more funds to come into the abbey um part of it contains a story about so a real life young couple came to the abbey after hearing about it to see if it had anything to offer they were quite into like again what we would now call new agey stuff don't know what you call yeah. it in the 1900s um, Mysticism. The, the day they arrived crowley tried to trick them into eating shit by telling them it was a special <laughs> kind of food what? you should have turned into danny devito now <laughs> yeah i mean it is like yeah, that was funny sketch. The woman who's now sweet D in my head is literally like, you know, that shit on a tree. And he's like, no, no, it's magic food. And she's like, no, it, it's shit. Shit. Um, so they don't have anywhere to go. So they decide they're going to have to stay in the house until they oh, can come no. up with a plan. So they go and set up a room in the house. The woman then goes to, like, I don't know, have a look about. Crowley immediately tries to seduce the guy. Oh, this is like Rocky Horror Picture Show now. It is, but then it gets mental again. Oh, shit. The guy refuses Crowley's advances and is like, nah, I'm not into guys. Crowley's like, but everyone's into everyone. And the guy's like, no, I'm not. So <laughs> they then decide to go for a swim. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Crowley gets into the lake and tries to drown the guy. Oh, my God, because he can't advances. take rejection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So is this where he kills people? Um, We're getting to it. Right. So... They then come out and get dried off and they're going to leave. He says, before you leave, please let me show you what like our place is all about. Now, quite why they've not left by that point in time is crazy. Yeah. Um, but they stay and basically they stay and Leah comes out naked, lies with her legs spread. And once again, they try to get a goat to fuck her. And when it won't, 
Crowley slits its throat, spraying blood all over the young woman. Again, now I can only think of her as Sweet D. <laughs> so they then flee the house uh, and then they go to the papers and are basically like, <laughs> I'm now imagining like Now Magazine, like our 12 hour hell in Alistair Crowley's house. <laughs> But they tell their story to the papers and are like, we went there for half a day. He tried to, <laughs> he tried to molest them, then he tried to drown them. <laughs> they tried to feed the shit and they covered us in goat blood. The Me Too movement. <laughs> so basically Crowley's book, um, Diary of a Drug Fiend, it's not about him being a drug no. fiend, it's about this couple. I think the it's guys, the drug fiend. on his own life, but he's fictionalised it somewhat. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he's like this great character in it. So basically the story's about this couple, right, okay. go, this couple who go to live in this like beautiful, wonderful place and they reject all the goodness that this amazing man has to offer them, like eating Which, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and drinking cat blood. So towards okay. the end of 1923, uh, Crowley's got a little bit more money coming in. So the, the commune still exists. So he's still right. living with one of his two scarlet women okay the one who didn't mind the dead baby and crazy leah so they're all there together and he takes another lover uh, a guy called raul oh i found a man (laughs) yep another power bomb (laughs) so raul okay him and raul have only been together for like about two months and crowley forces basically crowley says that Raul's to come to this separate wee building with him and they're going to perform a magic ritual. No, of course. Turns out, cat. Oh, I was joking about cat bloods. What? Yep. And he te- it's like you're a witch. And he tells Raul to slit the cat's throat. <gasps> no, I love cats. To bring them magic energy. Oh, Raul, much like you just reacted, is like, oh, no, I don't want to kill a cat. I really like cats. Crowley goes mental. And starts screaming that you have to kill the cat, then stabbing wildly towards where the cat is. So the cat is all cut open but flees. Oh. Crowley's then chasing it round and kills it. Then he starts screaming at Raoul that the kill is unclean. The kill is unclean. The punishment for an unclean kill is that you must drink the blood. He holds up the corpse of the cat, forces Raoul to drink the blood from it. Oh my God. And Raoul dies. What, from drinking cat blood? From being forced to drink cat blood. It turns out that the cat has a blood disease. Okay, right. Because I don't think you can just die of drinking cat blood. You can't even die of drinking diseased cat blood. Apparently the issue is, and this sounds made up, but this is genuinely what happened. Apparently the issue is because Crowley forced him to basically drink all of the blood in an entire cat... And it had a blood disease that was only specific to cats. It made Raul so ill. And obviously they have no medical care. And again, they're living on a pile of shit. It might have been the pile of shit that maybe contributed to his death. Well, he dies within days. They don't get him any medical help. Hmm. I suspect it's something more than just cat shit, uh, cat blood. I don't think. I- I'm very suspicious. I think he may have poisoned him or his crazy wife might have ritually killed them or something Maybe. i mean they I are suspect insane. a bit more foul play than just he died of drinking cat blood and maybe he was so disgusted by it yeah i think he did something else to him so basically this shines a light on poopy and really responsible for the death of two people mm-hmm. uh, and is deported from italy and told that if he ever returns he will be charged on two counts of murder 
Right, well, quite rightly, but why didn't they step in before then? Or is it because they didn't have social workers back then and think, they were living yeah. in the middle of nowhere? And nobody knew that she'd had the baby. Like, she didn't go to the oh. hospital to have it. They, they'd had okay. the baby there. So um, he loses all his money again because he tries to fight this in court. But I oh. mean, he's a murderer, basically. So. Yeah, he's lost his mind. He so, really is a beast at this point. He returns to England again. Like, again, at this point, he's left the Scarlet Woman, the ape behind Rowell's dead. The other Scarlet Woman's fled because, again, dead baby. Uh, he takes quite, basically has multiple other lovers over the next five years. But every lover that he takes in the next five year period either leaves him. And if they don't leave him, they die or commit suicide. There's mm-hmm. two different lovers that he had that has uh, basically said that they committed suicide because of constant abuse, bullying and domestic abuse from Crowley. So he's awful. Do you think this is to do with the drugs or the, the mean, media yeah. or, or, or has it got anything to do with the relentless bullying that he received and beatings that he received as a child and this is his way of getting revenge or taking back I think control? he's just taking so much heroin and coke that he doesn't know Right. Okay, fair does. He also, you know when you see pictures of him where he looks literally like Uncle Fester from the Adams family. Well, yeah, I mean, in the front of my book, Alistair Curley, The Beastie Mystified, it is just a picture of a really old Uncle Fester-looking type guy with his shadow of his head. Like, so he looks a bit like Nosferatu with the fingers. Like, he's moving his fingers in a sort of scary, kind of cliche Dracula way. Yes. Uh, That's where we are now. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Right. And he's not really fat, kind of thin, really looking. Yeah, like again, he's very Uncle Festery, like mm-hmm. he's fat and thin and looks right. like a girl. Yeah. Uh, so by this point in time, he's responsible for the deaths of at least four people. How old are um, he? In his 50s, 60s? 55. Yeah, uh-huh. he's 55 because just after he turns 55, he moves to Berlin uh, and meets the Scarlet Women. Again? Number 43, uh, <laughs> Hanny Yeager. Harry? Hanny. Oh, Hanny. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, however, they have already said, sep- like, they separate within months. So he basically mm-hmm. announces that he's found a Scarlet Woman. He, again, is, like, physically abusive towards her. So they break up pretty much immediately. Uh, oh, hold on, really that's not true. He's physically abusive towards her. She reports it to the police. I don't know how I forgot this bit. This bit is also mental. Uh, and in September of 1930, so they'd been dating for several months at that point in time, he told her that he was going to visit a friend in Portugal. Well, in Portugal, he fakes his own death. He's informed that he's dead. The authorities think he's dead. However, three weeks after his death, there's a a art show in Berlin that's displaying some of his work. Hanny's there basically talking to people about him and about their relationship. He shows up (laughs) <laughs> Harry reports to the authorities he's not dead however they stop dating at that point because she's like yeah you're mental so they separate uh-huh. he moves in with Gerald Hamilton who is a sort of I've never heard of him before but he's like a sort of infamous British guy he was Winston Churchill 
said that he was a threat to national security. He wasn't allowed back in the country. He was basically like selling British secrets to oh, other okay. countries. Actually, I think I know who that is. Is it Lord Hoho? No, it's, it's probably a different guy to him. Maybe similar. Similar idea, yeah. Yeah. So he moves in with him. Uh-huh. Uh, they're not having a relationship, although Gerald Hamilton is gay. Right. But they're not having a relationship. That's odd. This is one of the other points in time where later on, after... Um, Are you saying that all the other men that he banged weren't gay? No, I'm saying that, like, I think there was a lot of assumption at the time that him and Gerald were a couple because... Oh, right, I see. Okay. <laughs> they were a bi man and a gay man living together, right. but apparently there was nothing going on. Okay. Uh, and this is one of the other points, again, when later questioned about why he lived with somebody that was selling, like, British secrets to people, he, he told the media that, uh, that, <laughs> that British... The British Secret Service had asked him to move in with Gerald Hamilton to spy on him. Again, the British Secret Service are like, no, we didn't. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, I mean, basically nothing happens for quite a long time then because he's just a smart kid. But when he's 62, he has another child. Oh. uh, Who the mother of the child... So basically, he's a socialite, or sorry, the daughter of the, yeah, she has a socialite. So the daughter of the Marquis de Videres. Where's that from? like, asks him. Is she a lot younger? Yeah, she's a lot younger. She's some relative of, like, the royal family, as in the royal family in England. Um, So she asks if she can have his child, they're not a couple. They've never been together. She uh, just wants so, a baby. Yeah, so basically, like, they bang once, and nine months later, she has a baby son uh, who... Hi, him. ...is Randall de Verdiez, although Alistair calls him Alistair Atatürk. <laughs> Alistair Atatürk, <laughs> uh, Alistair Atatürk Crowley, but his name on his birth certificate is Randall de Verdiez. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's like a descendant of Alistair Crowley, sort of in the royal family. Well, not surprised. I mean, there's lots of fucking perverts in the royal royal sure. family, as we know. <laughs> there's plenty of beasts like Prince Andrew, for one thing, <laughs> and Camilla. <laughs> so, although he has this other name for his son, he never really sees his son. Like, I mean, he's in his uh-huh. late 60s by this point in time. By 1944, he was like his dependency to heroin and cocaine was as such that he wasn't he was just like I'm surprised him. he's lived that long because yeah. most, most junkies like eventually OD or die or whatever obviously OD is oh, he keeps becoming a millionaire <laughs> magically over and over again so that's probably helping <laughs> yeah uh, he's not I mean by this point he's destitute he's like oh, basically shit. a shell of a human mm-hmm. he lives in a boarding house in Sussex in a single room with his secretary put that in inverted commas uh, a male, 19- male, a 19 year old right. boy called Kenneth. Oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, <laughs> no. Now, Kenneth has said that because Crowley was so poor at this point in time, he was paid in teachings, not money, whatever that means. Okay, mm. you can't live off of teachings. What, I don't get, they must have gave him food or something or board. Uh, Crowley is uh-huh. regularly visited by his GP. He can no longer get out to buy coke or heroin. Oh, what, he, does his doctor bring him coke and heroin? 
So his doctor's bringing him like really, really strong medication, but not coke or heroin, but because like he doesn't take it anymore. <laughs> However, the doctor then thinks that he is continuing to take coke and heroin, hmm, doesn't know well, where he's getting it from. Perhaps well, Kenneth's buying it for him, but perhaps yeah. not. I don't know. Maybe um, send Kenneth out as a rent boy or something to get to hustle for for coke and heroin for him. So basically, his GP tells him on a visit that he's not going to give him the medication that he should be giving him because it's dangerous to mix with cocaine and heroin. Crowley's mm. insisting that he doesn't take coke and heroin anymore, even though he's quite clearly out his tits. <laughs> uh, the GP tells him that he's basically refusing, he's leaving. Crowley shouts at the GP, I bought a car, Sanyo! I am the most powerful wizard in the world! <laughs> uh, he tells him, the GP, you have killed me and you shall die within 24 hours of my death. Oh, and does it happen? Later that day. Wow. Uh, Crowley has a visit from a woman that he's working on a set of tarot cards with. All right, nice. Tarot cards, uh-huh. She asks him how he is. He says, sometimes I hate myself and then drops dead. Wow. And exactly 22 hours later, his GP drops dead. I read that he placed a curse on Crowley. Is that because, no, but that's got to be made up because, is that just because his, his name's Crowley and Crowley sounds similar? I don't know. And that anyone who lives there will be miserable and that even if they leave, they'll always be drawn back so they can never truly leave. Maybe, maybe he just screamed that one out the window. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you have to, like, carry a pebble with you while you're leaving Crawley so you don't come back or some shit. I don't know. It's weird. Um. Yeah, well, that what, what, what a life. What a life indeed. I would like to read um to the boys and girls out there just a sample of Mr. Alistair Crowley's poetry, which he He's wrote. There. He wrote this after he uh, was dumped by his drag queen boyfriend when he was 22, uh, where I mentioned the guy was called Paulette, and um, they went out. Oh, he was a drag queen under the name. It's not the best drag queen name. Diane de Ruggi. They met in October 1897 and broke up before Christmas and they wrote yearning letters to one another over the holidays and became lovers on New Year's Eve. Uh, an event recorded by Crowley as admitted to permanent office in the temple midnight, December 31st, 1897. <laughs> Again, very neck beardy. Like, let's just yeah. say I was admitted to the permanent office of midnight. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very weird way to say that you had sex, Alistair. Say no more. Um, Yeah. Um, He said that Paulette was rather plain than otherwise. Oh, of course, yeah, because nobody's better than you, Mr. Crowley, God's sake. His face was made tragic by the terrible hunger of the eyes and the bitter sadness of the mouth. He possessed one physical beauty, his hair. Its colour was pale gold, like spring sunshine and its texture of the finest gossamer. The relation between us was that ideal intimacy which the Greeks considered the greatest glory of manhood and the most precious prize of life. <laughs> which is just a flowery way of saying they're gay. Um, 
Yeah, just so... because the Greeks were pro-gay, I don't think that specifically means that the relationship they advised the most was a drag queen having sex with a mentalist. <laughs> so they found this notebook through, um, this guy found Crowley's notebook through his interest in early gay literature. And he says it's the earliest known Crowley manuscript, explicitly homoerotic and auto-sadomasochistic. A sailor's kiss is branded on, this is a poetry, a sailor's kiss is branded on my throat, where his teeth infamous bit hard on the skin. Ooh, so he got like a fucking, what is it called? (laughs) What is that, a a kiss, what is that called where you get like marks on your neck, someone sucks on it? Uh, what is love that bite, a love, love bite. bite. So he's writing about a love bite there. The poems would have been unprintable when written. I mean, it's not that edgy, fuck's sake. And only two have ever been published. Maybe they were weren't published because they were shite. Um, Crowley had spared the collection of eight sonnets, including "He Who Seduced Me First and I Who Am Dying for Vicus" and other six poems, all written in pencil in a cheap palm-side notebook bought in Amsterdam, because he destroyed all his er- other early poetry. He destroyed the poetry because he was the priest, the master, the leader, and it didn't suit his image to be seen as weak and vulnerable. But he kept his little book all his life, so the poems obviously meant a great deal to him. The book will be for sale at a fair price twelve thousand five hundred. Okay, right. So here it is. It's called "The Red Lips of the Octopus" from the Amsterdam Notebook of Alistair Crowley. The red lips of the octopus are more than myriad stars of night. The great beast writhes in fiercer form than thirsty stallions amorous. I would they clung to me and stung. I would they quenched me with delight. The red lips of the octopus. It's like I read everybody laughing. They reek with poison of the sea, scarlet and hot and languorous. He's is he rhyming octopus with languorous here? My skin drinks in their slaver warm or slaver warm. My sweats his wrapped embrace excite. The heavy sea rolls languishly o'er the sanguinated kiss of us, like a bloody kiss. We strain and strive, we die for love, we linger in the lusty fight, we agonise, our club becomes more cruel and more murderous, my passion splashes out at last, ah, with what ecstasy I bite, the red lips of the octopus. (laughs) 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 Oh dear, um... Sorry, Alistair Crowley. Please don't curse me from beyond the grave. It's all right. I really don't think he's a magician or a wizard or anything. I mean, would that be an appropriate poem to like learn about in school to analyse? <laughs> Being, I don't think it's so much that it's inappropriate. I don't think there's a lot to analyse there. Like it's a bit <laughs> shit. My passion splashes out at last. <laughs> oh God, so bad. It's really bad poetry, I'm sorry, but yeah. It's funny though. Um <laughs> so I don't know, what do we think? I mean, he does he's the type of guy that thought he was more grandiose than he was, was brought up in a sect, a religious sect, had a dominating mother, um, got whipped quite a bit as a boy, he was severely bullied, and then wanted to become a powerful wizard. And then became a horrendous drug addict. 
And then people seem to have all these legends that sort of grew up around him afterwards, particularly in the 60s, I think, or 60s and 70s. Yeah, I think like the the Beatles I, and Led Zeppelin and um, Ozzy Osbourne and well, Black Sabbath and all of them. Yeah, like I think the people that they became, apparently were interested <laughs> in him make him seem a lot poorer than he was, which is not yeah. cool at all. He's in fact not just a mental shitty baby murderer. But he was really good at mountaineering and he was That's one of the true. first people to climb K2, although he was responsible for quite a few deaths up there. Which I forgot to mention because I, I skipped the whole mountaineering bit um, where he was up there and there was an avalanche or something and he didn't give a fuck about them and just left them and walked back down. How many people uh, I think there was about 10 of them. So he's responsible for the deaths of at least 14 but people. I don't know if he was directly responsible for the avalanche or anything, but maybe I think people got pissed off of him because yeah he was because he was a bit of a rebel and that he didn't actually conform to state health and safety rules so maybe he was responsible for their deaths yeah i'm gonna say he was (laughs) i mean okay well let's leave it with like i think what the listeners want to hear is a bit of alistair crowley's um oh maybe not i'll find it a bit of Alistair Crowley talking. Because I find, I've, I thought, wonder if there's any actual recordings of Alistair Crowley, you know? Yes. And he doesn't sound like I thought he would. I don't know why I thought he would sound like he had a deeper voice. But again, it could be to do with maybe the recording at the time. You know, it may have been a higher pitch than what he actually sounded like. But let's see. Oh, that's not that's not it. <laughs> that's kind <Yeah>. of angular. <laughs> Why is that still playing? Right, wait, I'm gonna play it just now. Um okay. This is have not dedicated to Henry Farman. In the year of the primal force, in the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse. Man was the lord of the earth. He made him in hollow skin from the heart of an holy tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam. He harnessed the lightning for hire. He drove the celestial team, and man was the lord of the fire. Deep mouthed from their thrones, deep seated, the choirs of the eons declare the last of the demons defeated. For man is the lord of the air. Arise, O man, in thy strength, the kingdom is thine to inherit. Till the high gods witness at length that man is the lord of his spirit. I don't know what he's saying. I'm presuming he's just high. He's probably trying to convince a great fucking life. Be careful, folks. Once you listen to this, your walls will start bleeding. And you might be compelled to eat shit. 
I don't know what you're saying. Bury me in a nameless grave. They came from God, the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. They slew me, for I did disparage therefore religion, law, and marriage. So be my grave without a name, that earth may swallow up my shame. <laughs> earth may swallow up my shame? Okay. Fair play. About... Oh, fuck. That marriage is a grave and earth may swallow up my shame. <laughs> I just realised mm. I put my headphones out my ears, so I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> 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 what were you saying? I'm mostly just going, hey, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Well, that was Alistair Crowley. If you do want to read more about him, I would do recommend this book that um, is by Roger Hutchinson called The Beast Demystified. I don't know if you can you can still get it on Amazon or whatever. I bought it in a shop. You remember shops? Yes. Or Dylan's or whatever on Sucky Wall Street. When I was like buying things like no actually I think I bought it in not that it fucking matters, but borders. I miss that place. Um loved that shop. But I think I know why they went out of business because I this is gonna sound like a total megalomaniac thing to say, but I used to go in there and I would get a book and they had a like a Starbucks or Costa in there. So I would grab books that I liked and then just use it like a library, buy a coffee and then just sit and read the book and then put it back on the shelf and not actually buy it. Over that's time. a really good idea. I mean, not yeah, that's a business that's why model for a bookshop, but... They didn't make any money. <laughs> so what are we going to do? That was quite a long one, but I think it makes up for not having a few episodes the last yes. few weeks. Um, yes, I'm going to have to cut out a bit. To because of the myth child interruption but it's fine <laughs> <laughs> he did desperately need water because again I'm a terrible parent and only gave him a pint of water before bed he might grow up to inherit this podcast probably it makes sense mm. he needs a Leslie equivalent he needs a Leslie equivalent and also I need to start calling him other than the myth child which is also a made up name like <laughs> Shalambaloo <laughs> Flamelamo. Poopy heads. Right, well, let's choose from the list. Oh, um, I also want to say that quickly that I went to see Renfield last night. Oh, it I was really absolutely, it was fucking campy hilarity, very gory, but it's not the best of films. I've, I mean, nothing beats what we do in the shadows for a comedy vampire, but it, it, it looks fun though. It, it was, it was quite. Yeah, it annoyed me towards the end because I'm always on Dracula's side, but you know, I kind of didn't like Renfield by the end of it because I love Dracula. <laughs> Dracula was really funny. He's sort of a cross between Bella Lugosi and Christopher Lee and ridiculous like Cage, <laughs> Nick's Cage madness. Um, yeah, so it made me think like maybe we should do um, a podcast on. Dracula and Vladimir Vladimir Paler 
or did we do all that already in the vampires one? No, because we just covered it. We didn't go in depth with it. No, I think we like kind of touched on the fact that they both are things, but mm. we were talking more about Count Dracula than Count Dracula. Yes. <laughs> and how Count Dracula's dad was a fucking psychopath and killed the entire village. <laughs> <laughs> and then Count Dracula's son, because he was a vegetarian. <laughs> Uh, I think that's how it went down, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I believe so. <laughs> or something about the Count from Sesame Street went mental and killed the rest of the Muppets on a fucking <laughs> bloody old rampage. <laughs> when he wasn't allowed to count numbers. That's why, no, they keep him counting to distract him. From <laughs> so that he doesn't him. devour them. He doesn't devour them. Because there was, was a... no distracting Count Dracula's father. <laughs> I love it. It's so funny. All right, let's pick a number for the next topic. <laughs> uh, pick a number between 1 and 29. Um, 38, which is my age. Sorry, 1 and 29. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for 28 then, 10 years younger. Uh, well, that's Dracula. <laughs> fuck yeah, I, I am a witch. <laughs> I am an actual witch. You are an actual witch. <laughs> wow. Maybe I should start my own cult like Alistair Crowley, but without all the drugs and sex. And That's dead babies. And, and shit. <laughs> the shit's still my least favourite, but <laughs> take everything else over the shit. <laughs> See, I wonder in Scientology, does David, David Miscavige probably makes people eat shit probably. off the floor if they're being bad? Like Shelly, where's Shelly? Where is Shelly? But not like he's a sneaky wee trick. Like, I don't think he comes over with a tree and is like, would you like a bit of cake while giggling to himself? You're like, that's shit, David. (laughs) It's a magical potion. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not shit. (sighs) Right. Well, thanks very much for listening. Um, And I appreciate you're waiting for us to come back if you are one of those people that have caught up with all our podcast episodes and are like fuck's sake where are where is the next one or maybe you just don't give a shit like Alistair Crowley <laughs> did yeah uh, anything else you want to say Mark before <laughs> we leave you have no internal plumbing and therefore mm. you have more important things to worry about I mean there are uh, people out there that genuinely do even if they do have internal plumbing just collect shit in jars and in their in their baths and it's a real problem and they don't want to throw it away for some reason. If you're one of those people, throw your Get help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or at least turn it into manure and throw plants out of it or something. Do something good yeah. with it. Don't leave your baby lying in it for several days so that it oh. dies and you get banned from visiting Italy. That's dark. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what happened. <laughs> Train spot baby. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot of weird there's I mean there's some horrible shit out there. Like I seen a video recently of like you know how like San Francisco we've got a really bad homeless problem or drug problem. Yes. Um there was a video recently of a, a junkie who was high or whatever. Um and she had a baby in the street and didn't even realise it. Oh and it God. was like literally hanging out her leggings. And people were trying to get it from her. And I was just like, oh, my God, what the fuck is going on? Like, someone needs to do something. That's deranged. Yeah. 
What a wonderful world we live in. <laughs> Indeed. Happy days. Well, hopefully you'll come back and um, go see Renfield. It's a, it's a laugh. I shall. I'll probably um, stream it. Okay, do what I felt, and that shall be the whole of the law. Bye. Bye.